I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deegan. On the show today, is Paul Dacre really going to be running off Com? That's the question the sector's asking this week. We'll tell you why. Also on the programme, ITV bounced back with revenues up on the before times. The BBC is under scrutiny as it ends its partnership with Stonewall. And in the media quiz, we learn a novel way to get your outstanding invoices paid. That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. And joining me today is the MD of TV Indie Gold Waller. It's Faraz Osman. Hello, Matt. How are you in your new hot seat? This is the first time I've been on this pod with you front and centre. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm, I'm very good. Uh, locked in my uh, little audio box. Uh, but I believe that congratulations are in order. Yeah, yeah we, won a, <laughs> we, won the, we won a Japan Award for uh, preschool education for our show What's on Your Head. Um, yesterday actually um so it's hot, hot off the press so yeah i had a very nice sushi lunch to celebrate it was delicious and did i suppose you couldn't get to japan so did they dial you in i mean i'm not saying that i'm slightly bitter about that but but yes it was very much a a, a zoom flight to tokyo um and uh it, I've, it's one of the places i've always wanted to be but never actually managed to get to so who who knows maybe we'll be extending an invitation for the next season Next year, next year. Um, making his media podcast debut, it's the EVP of TV consultancy 3Vision, Jack Davidson. Hello, Jack. Hi, Matt. It's great to be here. Uh, good to have you here. Um, so you've been doing some research recently uh, on the streaming wars. Have you got any top data to titillate our listeners? <laughs> I just noticed Disney's results came out today, which which are which are not so good, um, and their story is 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 just well maybe maybe a sign of momentum being lost after after a fairly strong start. We are yeah, as you say, we're always covering the streaming wars, and it is a it is a fascinating time, definitely. Um, obviously, it's competitive, but how the different studios and the different global players are kind of navigating this this more competitive environment. I think one of the things I find most fascinating is it, it almost seems now that 
the US studio's success depends on what happens everywhere outside of the US, um, which is a complete reversal of, 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 of how their fortunes always, always used to fare before when, when they were sort of totally kind of dependent on the networks at home and, and a domestic market. Uh, yeah, and there's a, a real change, I suppose, with uh, launching their own services, partnering on launching services, which I think is what Comcast has done in a lot of European markets, um, or just selling their stuff to channels like the old days absolutely entirely i mean i think the early sort of period of of the global launches uh, people skimmed over the kind of more complicated side of of the issue of launching things globally um, such as kind of nbc's significant interest in sky in sky markets um, such as kind of warner media's long-running hbo output deals that go to 2025 and are worth a lot of money um, and uh, kind of those issues are having to be addressed now and uh, and i think kind of not just actually that that joint venture um, Sky Showtime that that NBC and Viacom CBS launched, but but how that also all of their activity that fits together. So that the Viacom kind of CBS venture Paramount Plus is going to be part of Sky in the UK, but it, in non-Sky markets it will be part of Sky Showtime, and and then likewise kind of although not tied, kind of channel carriage deals have been done at the done at similar times. So all of these things are happening that that are kind of revealing kind of the more detailed complex act aspect of what otherwise they used to call kind of a global streaming rollout. I'm sure there is a big spreadsheet that you guys have to keep track of all these things. Someone probably not known for spreadsheets, uh, Paul Dacre, a former editor in chief of the Daily Mail. Uh, could he really end up as the chair of Ofcom? Uh, that's the question many in the sector are now asking as leaks indicate an interview panel with a sizable conservative leading contingent. Um, according to The Guardian, the latest panel member is Michael Simmons, who worked as an advisor to conservative ministers during the 1990s before co-founding the polling company Populous. Um, as a quick reminder, Dacre was interviewed for the role earlier this year and he failed the final interview. Um, the job was then re-advertised uh, by the government uh, and... And he's expected to reapply and is seen to be the top choice for the government. Uh, Faraz, can you explain why this pairing of Ofcom and Dacre is hard for us to get our heads around, but government seem to really do have him in mind? So Ofcom is a regulator. And, and I think that in our as people that have a have have it uh, drilled into us around impartiality and uh, what we expect the media in this country to do, particularly because our I would argue that our television and broadcasting media in this country is so healthy because it is meant to be unbiased from from political persuasion. Uh, to to have somebody come in who is so clearly both from a newspaper space, which doesn't have the same rules about impartiality um, as as a broadcasting space, um, and has a clear political slant to who it is that, that supports the current government that's in power at the moment, uh, there are a lot of question marks about the the reasoning as to why he's the best person for the job. And is it because he has the best political view for the job? Or is it because he is legitimately the best person to be chairing this very important uh, um, regulator? Um, so I, I think that w that's the question marks that are being held. And obviously, a lot of what Ofcom does regulates the BBC, and and that's a kind of big part of, of what we're looking at here. Um, and uh, and as we continue to have question marks around what is unpolitely called the culture wars, and and this government's insistence on on stoking those, what is, is what it seems. This this seems to be an, another strike across that belt. Assuming 
that he gets the job. Um, it is a very odd recruitment process that you would have somebody that wasn't fit for the job, um, seemingly in a, in a previous instance, and then that process is is rerun um, with different people making that decision. Uh, and there's a, there's a there's a general concern that this was a foregone conclusion before it even started. And I have to say, with the the recent scandals that have been going through the government um, with Owen Patterson and uh, um, and and how that's all kind of played out. It, it does feel like this is one of those things where it's going to be interesting to see how far this government can push to continue to rewrite the rules in their favour. Um, and, and and this may be the next shock that comes along the, the corner. Whether or not they can weather it is is going to be is going to be seen. Um, but it is a worrying time for anybody that believes in impartiality in broadcasting. Jack, Ofcom's role isn't just about regulating broadcast news. It regulates the phone industry, uh, radio, uh, even the post office, and it's going to soon uh, regulate the internet. What do you think we'd expect from a, a DACA-chaired Ofcom? Well, heaven knows what to expect from that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I couldn't agree more with what Farris just said, and it beggars belief that you could resubmit or reformulate an interview policy and then someone could come in and uh, and qualify. It's a bit like kind of rewriting RFPs, isn't it, um, to, 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 to suit the vendors. What I do know is it would worry me. Uh, Faraz, do you think, how likely is it he's going to get the job? G- give, me, give me your percentage. <laughs> what do you think? Oh my God, are you, am, I, am I now part of the betting market? Um, yeah. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against it, is, mm. is, my, is my short answer. I, I think that because it's generated so much noise, I mean, we don't even know if he's applied for the job again. It's, mm. you know, it's, it's unclear as to whether or not he's even in the running and he's put himself in the running to go through this process. So he sort of left Associated properly this week, didn't he? And also I, they, they changed the... The job descriptions were tweaked, and if you can you can read into them that he fits slightly better to the current job description uh, than the one he failed last time. I'd love to have job descriptions tweaked for me. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? I think they have to have a, like a real robust case to say this is why they're going to do it because it is so controversial. And actually, you could probably find somebody else that has got similar political persuasions that isn't as in the public eye to take this position and it would be much quieter and may even have the same impact. I think it's one of those things where Dacre is is almost bigger than the regulator themselves and uh, you know is one of these editors that kind of is such a presence and a figure that it, it would almost overshadow what it, the work, any work that Ofcom do moving forward which I think is, is going to be problematic for them. So it, it seems a bit strange to me about why Dacre wants to do this and when what's the what's the purpose for it other than they just want another person to to, to bash bash over the bash the BBC over the head with because he's obviously not a big fan of the BBC. It, it it has to be said, you know, it is very easy to to criticise Paul Dacre and say that he's you know he's a he's an ogre of the broadcasting industry and we should we should do everything that we can to stop him from taking the job. But the realities are he has grown one of the most successful media brands in the country and, and has pivoted it to uh, to online in a way that very few other papers have been able to do bar maybe the guardian um you know the daily mail online is is a is a massive juggernaut when it comes to its international presence and and you could argue that there is a there is some validity in in his experience from from that point of view he he my understanding is that he oversaw it as it became such a big online brand um and and so you know i'm sure that he has got a strong case for why he is an exceptional candidate for this sort of position, but the but the amount of baggage that comes with it just feels uh, feels icky to me. 
Uh, also, I think he's going to be surprised on how much work he's going to have to do on broadband pricing and postal regulation as well, and that he won't just get uh, to spend his time um, making it harder for the for the BBC to exist. He'll have to be doing some DAB Plus stuff as well, won't he, Matt? That's like that's. Uh... Yeah, all, all of that. If I was an Ofcom executive, I'd be um, piling up uh, his intray with incredibly boring things and uh, <laughs> see how he, how he finds that. Uh, flicking over to somebody who uh, Ofcom regulate, ITV, I mean, they're in a great place at the moment with uh, revenues up, up, up and better than pre-COVID levels. Um, Jack, ITV's revenues is not just ad sales, is it? What else is in the mix? There's the mix of of that ad sales, I guess, as well. The 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 what's the what's the hub revenues, but then there's also ITV Studios, which has had a um, kind of decent period after after all production based companies have struggled during COVID and during the, the associated lockdowns. But yeah, they they had very encouraging results. Their to, the total ad revenue was up. The the digital engagement figures that kind of all of them were up. I think kind of ITV Hub's got more users, more registered users, more people viewing. But behind that, and I haven't looked entirely at the data, but when I've looked at the data before, um, anytime there's a big football tournament and anytime Love Island's on, <laughs> that, that that has a big impact on the digital numbers. And both of those events have occurred in this period. So I, I, I think they kind of, uh, my, my view is yes, the results are good, but actually from a digital point of view, I don't feel they're still doing enough. I don't think they're giving digital enough kind of primacy or, or, or even, even kind of fair way in the same way that other European broadcasters are doing. Um, it, it's it's tough. It's that same challenge, isn't it? While the traditional business is still delivering cash, like it, it, it's, it's hard, but, but my, my, concern would be they need to drive more usage they need to kind of get people more addicted to the digital service i think i think only kind of they said they've got 30 odd million registered users and 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 9.6 million monthly average users so my question would be kind of what are all the other registered users doing every month and 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 they talked about improving the content proposition on the hub I think they described it as extending catch up and doing more box set launches and a little something about short form but but Again, I think they're behind in ambition terms of other broadcasters here. They're still letting the broadcast channels kind of lead um, and not giving much of an advantage or even fair fair win for, for, for the hub. And, and I think they could do more there. And that, that's true also for, for BritBox. But, I mean, they mentioned a BritBox number, which, let's be honest, was very underwhelming, um, e- even though they, they, they said, oh, we've had growth. Um, and the fact that they are pushing the AVOD side of things, describing how Planet V kind of is working very well and, and, and that side of business growing, it, it kind of, it just seems that sort of those underwhelming figures for BritBox well, I think they're in a confused position with that. I'd put it that way. But they've had some big hits, haven't they, for us? They've had new shows on ITV. They've had shows for Netflix. They've had shows for Apple TV+. Plus. Um, what's doing well for them? Yeah, I think that this hybrid model of having a broadcaster and also being a studio, which is similar to what Sky have as well, you know, they have their technology arm and, and they have their, you know, they have their own original content that they're making it is, is a model that seems to be working across the board because you can effectively spread your bets around content. Um, either you make it yourself or make it for other people and you broadcast it and you, uh, you, you stake your claim on the advertising space or you stake your claim on the SFOD space. Being in both actually feels like quite a sensible strategy um, for a lot of these broadcasters and 
I have to say, raises questions about the future of Channel 4 and uh, and the questions around privatisation. If uh, if ITV are able to be so successful in that hybrid model, it, it makes the case for not privatising Channel 4 a, a little bit trickier, I would argue. Um, also, like... If, if I was to jump on my own spec, you know, on my own train to the speculation station, I, I would argue <laughs> that a lot of this might be to do with Apple's restrictions around cookies and uh, mobile phone privacy data, which has had a massive impact on on places like Facebook, which is you know gobbled up all of the advertising revenue for such a long time. If if you're an advertiser now, you would probably see, and I have no. To be absolutely clear, I don't have any particular inside knowledge around this. But, you know, if I was to just look at it as an outsider, uh, if you saw what happened where... where so, so to clarify that, Apple have done this thing where you now have to opt in to allow tracking uh, across your devices and across your different apps if you use an Apple device, which has hit Facebook's business model quite hard. Because they, they, inform- they use that targeting information to get better yields and better click-throughs on, on ads. Exactly that. And, and if Apple are kind of pouring cold water on, on that business model, it, it leads to reason that the advertising dollars may flow back to, to the traditional uh, advertising spots that exist on things like ITV. So this, this may be the beginning of a, of a kind of re-emergence of traditional advertising, as it were. It could, it could just be a blip because lots of people were at home and watching telly. So therefore, advertising revenue became more valuable. Um, but, you know, you're not going to advertise in cinemas, for instance. You know, no one went to cinemas last year. So it'd be interesting to see if this sustains for next year. But I think that ITV's model of having, uh, having their own programming that they make for broadcasters that don't have advertising, like Apple and Netflix... And also having their own channel where they can they can leverage the advertising revenue is is a really sensible and strong one as we continue to evolve through this market. And I do think we are now settling down into a mix of advertiser led programming and and subscription led programming and and people like ITV are at the forefront of that. I mean, it'd be crazy for Apple to be the saviour of TV advertising. Uh, You mentioned their Channel 4. Um, According to the Times, they're close to securing a new multi-million pound deal for the Great British Bake Off and sort of associated spin-offs. How important is Bake Off to Channel 4? Right now, it's essential. I mean, like there's it, there's no there's no bigger show. It's the real both revenue and eyeball driver for Channel Four. I I don't know what the stats are. I know the launch was down quite significantly on previous years, and you know, again, completely anecdotally, I haven't watched this season. Like I kind of checked out after the first episode. I haven't seen as many people talking about it. There doesn't seem to be a breakthrough character like we've had in previous years. Does that mean it's going to be easier to renegotiate for Channel Four? Does that mean that it's not the the prize cow that it used to be? Um, is is all is all up for debate? But but I do think that we are definitely in a in a world right now where the the next hit is needs needs to be found because I think we've got to a point now where people have gone a bit stale on Bake Off. Oh. There you go. Well. Uh- <laughs> Well, if if you if you want some vegan tips, uh, catch up with Bake Off on all four, and it's free from week this week that's just got up. Um, Jack uh, is uh, having that Bake Off deal going to make Channel Four more attractive to potential commercial backers, both advertisers, but I guess even uh, with maybe the whole the whole of Channel Four being being up for grabs. 
I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, it's a big program for for, for us, is right. But I think um, it would be a, f- a fairly um, narrow-minded view of any of anyone either either buying or looking at buying or, or planning a sale um, to think about to factor just that. But I mean, we all know the the, the bullet points on Channel Four. It's independence. It's it's definitely unique status, and and uh, the 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 fact that kind of selling it raises. A huge challenge for the independent production industry. We've we've actually just well, uh, not long ago we completed a survey of the production industry, sort of a COVID impact survey for for, for PAC, the, the the producers association, and we're just about to finish the the export. Um, survey that we do every year for them as well unfortunately it's not quite finished i can't tell you the numbers but but um but the 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 feedback from within that actually about channel four was kind of this the smaller indies um were going to be in a lot of trouble if 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 channel four was going to be sold i mean and that that's under under understating it i mean they were going to they were going to go bust and 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 they'd leave the market and and i don't i mean it, it it sort of it's, it, I think it's indisputable that it's important to the independent production industry. I think then the question is kind of what's the rationale for it? Um, can you sell it and and put in the provisos that that protect that? Um, I've kind of then you just end up in a world of circular contradictions. <laughs> That if you did, um, you're not going to get value for the for value for the thing, and if, kind of why are you doing it in the first place? I, I, so I was I was sort of pleased to hear the response to the consultation was extensive and big from lots of people, and I was pleased to almost see a breathless um, uh, government thinking, well, actually, we'd better stop and and think about this. But but who who knows what's going to happen. I heard Rachel uh, Johnson speak uh, yesterday about uh, government uh, or her view on on Nadine Dorries and government media policy. And she was saying that Nadine's interesting. No one knows quite yet whether she's just there as a placewoman to do what the Conservatives and what Boris Johnson wants. But also she said, you know, this might be the highest level she can get to in Cabinet. Uh, so will she use that to to do a good job and to sort of stick there for, for a long time and give some of her specific views? Um, I think it, for us, we, we flick between Channel 4 saved and, and then suddenly Channel 4's not being saved. Go on, give me some more odds. What do you reckon <laughs> next year? The, 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 How the, I ended up being like the, the, the odds tracker for the media the podcast. I'm like, I feel like I should be taking a bit of a cut from this. Do you think um, they'll make it? I, do you I think, think they'll make it or do you think they'll be flogged off? No, to be, to be honest, I mean, I think to Jack's point, like, I, I, I don't want to be selfish about it, but frankly, the impact it has on other companies, this is bigger, this is a much bigger story than Channel 4, right? I run a small indie, and if you're going to just kind of th- throw this out without and ignore the whole industry, kind of saying this is a terrible idea, you know, it's not Channel 4. Everybody that's an exec at Channel 4, the commissioning editors are there, everyone that's kind of like got to the, to the higher echelons of media, they're going to be all right. You know, they've, some of them have already landed big jobs at places like Amazon and Disney, etc., None of that lot are going to be that worried about whether or not they're going to pay their mortgage in, in the next year. People like us are, right? You know, I run a small production company. Having another customer be taken off the table simply because of some 
some weird um, logic around um, uh, 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 that they've kind of concocted around, you know, the future of Channel 4 is a real, real concern. There, there is legitimately a debate to be had around Channel 4, and it's, it's well overdue about whether or not Channel 4 is meeting its remit. And, and to go back to the conversation around Bake Off, you know, Love Productions isn't a small production company, and it's part owned by Sky, if I understand, right? There's, it, again, the people that run that company aren't going to lose sleep if Channel 4 disappears tomorrow. They'll find another buyer for, for, for their incredible slate of programming. The, the issue is, is that while Channel 4 continues to be distracted by those big deals and those big brands, which frankly have found success on other channels and they're bringing them over and shipping them over and raising the price of them, it's the smaller indies that are kind of left out in the cold. And we're the ones that are kind of, you know, championing it, kind of going, you need to save this. It's important for our business. It's really, really essential. Yes, the voices from the bigger indies have, have come out there as well. Frankly, though, the, the, the pressure on them is, is less significant. And, you know, it will, be, it will be companies like ours that will go to the wall. Um, and But we haven't, if I'm being brutally honest, and it's, it's probably a controversial thing to say in publicly, but we haven't really had a huge amount of love from Channel 4 back about whether or not this is, you know, how, how we are meant to be surviving this. And, you know, I would, I would very much like to see 4 spend less time renegotiating the Great British Bake Off and spend more time celebrating the small and medium-sized indie community that's out there. That will be lost. And, and as a result, television creativity will be lost if, if this continues to, to go the direction it's going in. So talking about indies, but from a, a slightly different angle, one story that came out of the Radio Academy Festival uh, last week, uh, by the way, bonus episode with one of the sessions uh, on this podcast feed. Um, there was some news about a new fund for emerging indies. Uh, Faraz, have you had a look at what Charlotte Moore uh, announced last week? Yeah, there's lots of really interesting things going on at BBC Sounds at the moment. And they seem to be like really confident in the way that they are trying to mix things up to to create a whole new wealth of suppliers out there. There's the, uh, I can't remember the exact title of it, but there's a, there's a separate project that BBC Sounds are doing um, that's like an innovation uh, space for people that don't work in radio at all, which looks like it's going to be quite successful and it's got some strong ideas that's come through it as well. Um, Kalik Mir is, uh, is, is heading that up. And, and I think that that is, is really a smart way of kind of going, well, actually, audio as a medium has changed quite significantly and we can have some new entrants come into this space um, and see if they can, uh, you know, tried new things up you know radio is there's a very very particular way of making radio which meant that it was the kind of custodian of, of a few production companies um but but i think now that podcasting and more people have got into it you know i'm sitting here with a little podcasting desk and and we've made podcasts for the bbc um a, a couple of small podcasts as well so this this sort of thing is really interesting to companies like us you know while there are threats in other spaces the innovation of opening up the uh the, the supplier base to to smaller companies like like us is is super interesting and we're, we're certainly excited to see where it goes and um and we'll certainly be putting our um uh, our feather in the cap that's not right what is it our coin in the well i don't know what the right <laughs> analogy is but you you pick your right audience because what because what what she um what she announced was was a quarter of a million pound development fund uh for sort of audio ideas and i know that radio indies historically have never really had any development money it was sort of expected that you you fund the development yourself and then you hope to get a commission later on um whereas telly sort of had had that a little bit a bit longer i mean development money's important for for any media isn't it for us yeah i mean it's essential and that's actually one of the biggest problems that we have as a production company is is trying to figure out how much of your own money and time you invest into development for an idea that you know that may not be in vogue by the time you get to the other end of it and and having that 
that balanced out is is essential when it comes to creativity because you're de-risking the, the you know the ideas that you can have and therefore you can be a bit more ambitious around them so I, I think it's it's a really great thing and and I think that um the development in in television is is very much around the idea of let's try things out and if they don't work at least we've given put the investment in in time effort and frankly money to uh to, to see if we can make it work and I think that audio will end up with some better more exciting ideas as a result of it and you know some of the audio work that BBC Sounds is doing Yes, some of it is brought in, like, you know, have you heard George's podcast? But but it is exceptional um, in the way that Radio 4 was always seen, and, and Radio 3 for that matter, was always seen as exceptional in yesteryear. So I think that if they can be on the front foot of that, then, uh, then I, you know, I think all credit to them. And I think it will need, but it will need development money. It, it can't just be the custodians of, of wealthy people and, and you know, hobbyists. Uh, it, has to, it has to require a, a decent business plan behind it. Uh, Jack, Charlotte Moore uh, announced this scheme. Now, she's the first to say that she hasn't had that much experience in radio. She's sort of inherited it all now as the BBC's kind of head of content. Um, But are there any existing schemes in TV that the radio sector could learn from? I don't know specifically, but but I absolutely kind of agree that with with what sort of some of, well, all of what Farrah says, but in particular the fact that kind of TV has had support, whether it's been at the high end with the kind of tax relief that, that, that uh, support that, that productions have had that had a big impact on on the amount of money that that, that, that came into into drama production. Um, and just support from, I mean, going back to the 2003 Communication Act and, and how they kind of changed things around and, and made sure that there was investment and a thriving kind of production community and that paid dividends because it built what what is kind of one of the the most kind of one of the largest and most I guess creative and 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 commercially successful kind of production sectors there is. So um, it probably like Charlotte, I'm no expert on radio, but I as a consumer and as a listener, I have a feeling that it's going in a nice direction and there are really interesting things happen. Uh, and I think kind of yes, investment in this has got to be good and some and there should be some some real benefits to come out of it. You're an expert on radio, Matt. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I think it's good. I think any 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 new money is a good thing. Uh, I think the development money and having it you know, tagged to development is definitely in demand from production companies is something they've been saying for a long time that they just don't have. And actually, the development only goes to people, you know, it's extra hours, it's extra days, freelance work. Um, it's not making people spend time developing ideas that you then pitch to the BBC, you know, it, it, it gives them some some money for that work, even if the show doesn't get commissioned. I think the other thing that's, that's interesting that Audio UK are really pushing for is tax credits. Um, just pick up what you were saying there, Jack, because, you know, Tax credits have delivered a lot of TV investment. And actually, UK is in a good place for audio and audio production for non-UK territories, podcasts, audiobooks, all that sort of thing. So if the government do want to build back better and such things, um, uh, a small, actually a small amount of money, uh, uh, tax credits would uh, potentially make uh, quite a difference. I have no concept of the, the 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 budgets with radio. To be honest, I understand budgets to TV. So, what magnitude is two hundred fifty thousand in development money? It's it's a very good proposal, but is it significant enough? Is it is it is it enough? Do you think? Well, it's more than zero, right? And I think that in development previously there, there wasn't there wasn't any. So uh, you know, the audio is 
both cheaper to to make than TV, obviously, but also you know it's 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 therefore more ex- more difficult to to build a company because you know the revenues aren't, and the, the bottom lines aren't as and the margins aren't as aren't as broad as as they are in in video. But one thing I think it is worth noting is that from what I've seen again as a you know we've done some audio work and I'm very passionate about audio but it's not a world that we are completely two feet in and and I what, what I've seen as an outsider is that IP in audio is becoming more and more valuable and uh, there are there are podcasts that have been turned into films there are books that have been launched off the back of podcasts and and I think that like actually you let's have, have a little bit of cynicism around this when you do development deals you also then take some of the IP as a result of that as well. And and I think that Charlotte's quite savvy to this, that actually if you're running a corporation like the BBC, it's never about just one medium. If you can find... Like there's a, there was a, a story out today about Chris Ramsey's podcast being turned into a TV show. Um, that's the sort of thing where I think the BBC are kind of going, well, hang on a minute, if we can do some development in audio, we may have a lot of, uh, a, a lot of gains when it comes to our, our other spaces. It's like the BBC metaverse and, and the development money... money for the BBC metaverse, it's all coming. As long as Mark Zuckerberg's not there um, deciding what gets commissioned, I think I think we'll be okay. Uh, now, speaking uh, about investment and money, uh, we'll be right back after this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Jack and France are still with me and it's time for some media news in brief. Uh, the BBC have pulled out of a diversity scheme organised by the LGBTQ plus charity Stonewall. Uh, this follows a very heated social media response to a podcast series investigating Stonewall by Five Live's Stephen Nolan and an article by BBC Nottingham, which then got some spread after being on uh, the BBC homepage uh, about we're being pressured into sex by some trans women, uh, which was... Um, positioning lesbians as being uh, pressured into sex by trans women, in which the Beeb then decided to edit. Faraz, this has all happened in the past couple of weeks. What do you make about what's been going on and, and the response? Uh, well, I think it's important to note that, you know, I'm, I'm not part of the LGBT community and, and actually um, I'm, I'm very mindful of that, that actually this, these sort of decisions Im- impact those communities and, and their voices 
I, I would argue, not being heard enough. It, it's, it's important to note that the BBC is a significant workplace. It's not just a, a place for output. And so when only these things happened, it has a very chilling effect on, on other communities. And, and I would say that, you know, this feels a little bit worrying because we've had a similar sort of story that came out around what happened with Marcus Ryder and the fact that he got overlooked for the the newsbeat job um, because of his campaigning work. And I think Tim Davey is very much, he's a, the DG of the BBC, Tim Davey has, has very much come out quite publicly and said that, you know, we need to do more to make sure that we are, uh, you know, we're not being seen as taking a, a political stance one way or another. Um, and there is a lot of value around that. But the problem that this is creating is communities within inside the BBC and people that may want to work for the BBC are having to kind of reconsider what they can be public about. And the biggest issue for me is that the trans community are um, have some of the most horrific statistics around uh, around uh, violence and, and suicide that is kind of almost been brushed aside in this debate about about gender rights and uh, and, and gender identity. Um, and that's a real, real concern, because if you're somebody working within the BBC right now, today, who is um, having uh, is having thoughts about their gender identity, and then this news comes out and you know that your workplace is not being as supportive as it can be, that can have a real, re- really, really damaging effect to a, to a level that is quite terrifying. Um, and I think that we need to be quite careful about how this debate is being played out into pub- in public and via the news agenda, but also how it's being played out within workplaces and, and in people's personal lives. Um, because I know, you know, from what's happened with, with the Marcus Ryder incident, I, I have become more conscious about what it is that I would say and, and how I would say it. And, and I think that that's a concern. Like, you know, if I'm somebody that wants to have an opinion around diversity, but I know that that may have an impact on my future career that changes the game and it changes the game even more significantly from people that don't have power and and all of these decisions are being made by people that have significant power and that's a real concern for those that are are, are in other communities who who simply don't feel like they have a voice in the first place and there seems to be a sort of uh, a split with the younger employees who are maybe more used to thinking about these issues and, and having engaged with them than the older employees, a bit like the, the the public at large as well. And there's a sort of who's commissioning this material versus the it tends to be at the older end, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the again it comes back to like I said about this thing in power. You know, if you've got a career and it's you've had a career for a number of years, then then all of these things feel like they are just part of an, a news agenda and, and not part of your kind of identity. And you know, younger people by their very nature are thinking about who they are and, and what they want to become. And all of these issues around diversity get get mixed up within that. The, the, look, there is no doubt that this issue around the trans community and, and trans, transgender rights and transgender identity is becoming another one, another part of, like I mentioned earlier, part of this kind of culture war. We've had Piers Morgan stick his toe in and, you know, say some outrageous things. It's getting clicks. It's getting newspaper headlines. It's causing, you know, people like GB News to throw their arms in the air and, 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 uh, and, and create programming around it. So there is a debate around that. And, and while I would, while I'm certainly on the uh, on, on the sense that trans identity is, is not something that is part of an impartiality issue, it's true that some people identify to a different gender to the one that they were born with, um, and and that's just a that's just a fact. And I don't understand why that isn't seen as the norm. There are people that are still going through that process. So the best way to go through that process is with debate. There's no doubt about that. That the issue I have is when we're considering it as a workplace. It, then if you're debating within a workplace, 
that becomes significantly disruptive and and becomes a real concern to to, to the welfare of your uh, of, of your team uh, so hot on the heels of the radars which we talked about uh, last time um tv's thinking about overhauling their ratings data um jack what what's going on <laughs> it seems like seems like Groundhog Day uh, uh, with this. The emergence of this initiative, Origin, isn't it called? Yes, Origin, I think. Um, it, it is very interesting. TV viewing or video viewing analytics, both kind of from a TV, traditional TV point of view and an online point of view, has been a sort of challenged area for years. Traditional TV measurement bodies, the TAMs, have, have been kind of changing and improving and innovating their products for quite a few years, but generally around improving the existing kind of approach to... To, to measurement and incrementally adding kind of bits, sort of on-demand measurements and and multi-screen measurements. But there's always been, from, from the TAM point of view, there's always been issues with kind of the structure and the operation of those TAMs that's hindered progress because there's always been resistance from the stakeholders to be honest in, in, involved in, in in the TAMs and TAM is like total audience measurement yeah there's different ways they run around the world but but in the UK um, obviously we have Barb and it's run by um, as, as a joint kind of industry committee uh, of, of, of broadcasters and originally they were very resistant to changing it and, and as a result the good old Barb ratings were, were the only currency advertisers used to accept for TV and even as kind of TV started to fragment maybe kind of catch-up viewing and 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 and, and uh, well um consolidated viewing kind of it, it was still kind of the only currency that was accepted by the advertisers and and then they started doing initiatives and and some of our clients who were pay tv operators had their own initiatives with using the return path data from the set-top boxes that people were actually using and but you always had the problem that the flow of data was was imperfect because someone owned a high volume of better quality data the tams had a smaller volume of 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 data but it, it was it may be better in quality in terms of being able to identify what type of audience it was who they were the demographics and kind of where they were but then obviously online video comes along and you almost have two two sides to it you have the sort of the data that the big tech platforms are, are using for, for online video and that feeds the digital video ad kind of systems and economy and those two never have met <laughs> properly and people have had problems with comparing those two as well saying it's, it's you're not comparing apples for apples so and what I find interesting about this initiative is that it seems like it's bringing together lots of the stakeholders, the important stakeholders, so some big advertisers, some big agencies, some big publishers, and the global platforms. And, and, and their aim is to bring together the data from different sources, including Barb, including, I mean, said the Rajar, kind of, kind of the, the BVOD data from the broadcasters, data from the tech platforms, and, and they're talking about how they'll do it with some anonymized mechanism. And, 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 Great. Fantastic. The system really needed improving. But let's wait and see. We're going to have to see. I have to get more detail on this initiative. Uh, so here's something you might have missed. The editor of the Evening Standard, Emily Sheffield, has gone. The former Vogue exec was in post for about 15 months. Uh, for us, there was some disquiet from staff about how editors at the Standard have been hired in recent years. I didn't even know she'd gone. That's like literally hot off the press. This is new news to me. <laughs> kind of what's interesting is she was really hit by by COVID. You know, she took over as, as COVID started. You know, no one was in town to pick up a standard. They then went on to like delivering to the standard at home. I mean, tough time to take over 
what's still a relatively big paper. Yeah, I think it's it's a bit of a shame, really. She hasn't been given exams. I mean, I, I can't even remember the last time I picked up an evening standard because, frankly, you know, commuting into town wasn't a thing anymore. So I, I do think it's a bit of a, a shame that she's not been given a chance to mould that title in her own image as, as good editors should be able to do. So it's 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 curious as to why it's happened. Um, but you, But in the same instance, if you came into that job pre-COVID there's two things at play. Number one, is that newspaper going to go back to what it was post-COVID or do you need a completely new strategy and therefore a new editor to to take it into into to what will become the, the new normal or whatever we call it now? You know, are people going to be commuting in the same way? Are we going to see as many people going into town and, uh, and picking up a newspaper or, or, you know, are people going to be doing more days of work at home? And will that impact the free sheets in a way that they hadn't predicted before her appointment was made so you know from a strategy point of view it makes sense to completely review all of that and if if part of that review suggests that Emily's strategy was purely around the printed paper then then maybe you do need to have a look at it again but but it does seem a bit curious not to give her at least a chance before uh, as people start going back into town and uh, and back at their desks. Jack, in the time that uh, she's been the editor and b- because of the challenges that, that she's faced, I mean, the print editions often halved to as small as, as 28 pages on some days. Can it bounce back as a, a print title or do you think it's got to follow the metro route, which is in a, a sort of similar situation and, and, and really double down on digital? Um, I I think maybe that's not an, not an either or. I don't think it necessarily needs to give up on print, um, but it certainly needs to have a, a, a kind of a robust and strong digital strategy. There's no question. Um, I did read this story. I did, it does, obviously, it, it sort of almost sounds like bingo calling sometimes when they talk about the amount of money the standard loses. Like, And, and, and it, is a, it is scary when you kind of read that. Uh, I think it doesn't help her putting aside all of her own merits that after George Osborne, you had someone who was related to David Cameron. So I think that that kind of led to lots of internal, maybe maybe cynicism by the sounds of it. But yeah, I think kind of there there's lots of sort of post-COVID questions we all have about how we're going to behave. But I feel like the Evening Standard will be kind of sitting on the tube seat next to you for a while to come. I didn't realise that she was Cameron's sister-in-law. Maybe she'll make a good Ofcom chair. <laughs> Well, the the, the tramocracy is strong. Uh, One thing that we don't look to the tramocracy for, though, is the media quiz, uh, which is purely based on uh, skill uh, and your own personal integrity. Uh, This week, it's entitled Paraphrase. Uh, I guess that makes me Mr. Chips. I'll be removing squares to reveal a quote about a media story from this week. Uh, Go with it. It's going to be fine. Uh, Basically, I'll read a quote. You tell me who they're talking about. So there'll be three rounds. Buzz in with your name if you know the answer. So Faraz will say... Faraz. And Jack will say... Jack. (laughs) Let's play paraphrase. Uh, Right, number one. Uh, A hugely significant force, not just in our newsroom, but in the very fabric of British politics and broadcasting. An absolute titan. We will miss you. Faraz, this... For us, this is who is Adam, it and who said is, it? Uh, Adam Bolton and leaving Sky News, right? That is correct. He's left, isn't he? Yeah, he's uh, left. Uh, he's going to leave at the end of the year. Um, do you want to take a guess at who said it? It's one oh, of his, gosh. Um, it's one of his colleagues. I'm going to say Kay Burley. 
It was Kay Burley, talking about Adam Bolton. Hey. Uh, and he's obviously leaving Sky News after 33 years. That's quite the time. Uh, Jack, I mean, he's been there since the very beginning. Um, there aren't many journalists who are that loyal to a, a publication, uh, are there? No, I don't. Uh, God, yeah, I'm trying to think. There's probably some some BBC lifers, but um, yeah, I think he's done, had a great innings. There's two clips doing the rounds at the moment. One is Adam Bolton swallowing a fly, which is amazing. And the other one is David Cameron talking to a tree, um, of which Adam Bolton kind of kindly points out. Uh, they, they are, there's, there's a whole a whole trove of um, it will be all right on the night clips from Adam Bolton that I think that we can uh, definitely commission a Channel 5 show off the back of. His leaving tape uh, should be very entertaining, uh, I imagine. Right. Uh, number two, uh, buzz in if you know who said this and who they're talking about. Uh, right. The use of the term pornographer when applied to our client oh, is Jack. factually wrong. Oh, buzzing in, Jack. Yeah, this is one of my, my, my favourite people to read about. This is good old Tricky Dicky Desmond, um, uh, Richard Desmond, who amazingly it seems has been he kind of i think it's been well known in media circles especially when he when he bought um channel five that he wanted to sort of sort of whitewash his past um and uh he, he's taking this to to even more um incredible levels by by um I think is it Wikipedia? Yeah, he keeps having his Wikipedia entry changed, and and he's arguing that he can't be called a pornographer. Uh, yes, and and also um, I think the Guardian looked at this, and clearly somebody uh, in his team has been trying to keep editing Wikipedia against the rules uh, to remove this. But the uh, Wikipedia editors are very keen to pop it back in. Can you imagine getting a phone call from Richard Desmond's team saying Richard Desmond would like you to make make would like to make you an editor? And you're like, oh my god, amazing! I mean, the editor of one of Richard Desmond's like elite titles. It's a bit like, no, you're just the editor of his Wikipedia page. <laughs> I think I think my favourite Desmond oh my story God. when he moved Channel Five uh, in with his uh, adult um, uh, TV channels. Uh, someone one morning uh, opened the dishwasher to get some mugs out and found a load of sex toys that had been uh, being cleaned overnight. Uh, right, uh, number three. So it's one all. Uh, final one uh, will crown the winner. Daisy, can you or your agent pick up the phone? We can't keep communicating through Carol Baskin. Uh, Faraz. Yes, Faraz. This is this is about this is like a really weird story about her book, right? So I'm I'm going to say her book publisher said this. Yes. Um, well, you sort of. Yeah, because so Daisy you, didn't say it and Carol didn't say it, so it must be it must be her. And it's not her agent. So yeah, her book her book publisher is saying something about this weird thing where like Daisy May Cooper's paid Carol Baskin via cameo to like say some gags to her book publisher. So uh, sorry, I'm, I'm being very vague with this story because it's yeah, a really weird let, one. Let me help you out. So Daisy May Cooper is clearly having some trouble with her publishers um, uh, or if not, at least having lots of fun with them. Uh, and so rather than speak direct, she started doing cameo, uh, requesting cameos by Carol Baskin uh, to give to give messages um, to her publisher, but this week the publisher, which is Penguin, have requested their own cameo from Carol Baskin, and she has sent a message back. Uh, shall we hear? Let's hear Daisy's first uh, Carol Baskin message. Pay Daisy her money. What's the matter with you guys? Pay her what you owe her for crying out loud. Daisy is not going to be talking to you guys anymore. She's going to go through Carol Baskin and bring the message through me to you because you guys are asking for a Baskin by not paying Daisy what she's owed. 
What were you thinking? Well done, Faraz. You are the winner of the media quiz. Way. Do I get Carol Baskin to read out a uh, congratulations? Oh, we should, we, we, uh, we'll get someone on Cameo to send you a message. Joe, Joe Exotic giving me a tiger. Uh, more around the 10 to $15 mark. Uh, well, that's our show for today. My thanks to Jack Davidson and Paris Osman. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, uh, why not bung us the price of a hot chocolate at your chalet in the Alps or of a cameo that you might be uh, booking for a colleague? Just head to themediapodcast.com slash donate. That's themediapodcast.com slash donate. If you've just listened to 50 minutes of this, uh, maybe send us a few quid. Um, and of course, uh, follow us to hear new episodes when they drop on your podcast app of choice. If you haven't got one of those, just go to podfollow.com slash the media podcast and that will direct you to a place to listen uh, my name is matt deegan you can find my weekly newsletter about the audio industry at mattdeegan.com the producer was matt hill it was a rethink audio and ppm production and we'll see you in a fortnight bye, bye.